Welcome to the Senya Happy Hour, where you get one hour of learning in less than 30 minutes. Hi, listeners. First of all, thank you for listening to our podcast. Can I ask a favor? If you like this podcast, can you A, tell a friend, and B, leave us a review on iTunes? We at Senya truly believe that the more people who listen to our podcast, the more we can continue to live our mission and advocate and support to our students with learning differences. So please spread the word and don't forget to leave that review. Today I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Jim Delisle. Dr. Delisle has worked with and for gifted children for more than 40 years as a teacher, professor, and counselor. He's written 26 books for parents, gifted teens, and educators, and has presented his work in more than 20 nations on four continents. In fact, he was one of our speakers at the IRCOS-SENYA Joint Conference several years ago. He's the father of a grown-up gifted kid and the proud grandfather of a two-year-old named Wyatt, who likely follows in his father's intellectual footsteps. I've learned so much from our conversation today, and it opened my eyes to the special needs of gifted students. I hope all of you will enjoy it as well. And now, on to the show. Hello, Dr. Delisle, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Laurie. A brief backstory for our listeners. You were one of our speakers during the Senya Irkos Joint Conference back in Bangkok. I think it was 2018 or somewhere around there. Uh, what are your impressions of that experience? It, well, actually it was uh, recommended by a friend who had been there a few years earlier, who had since retired. And we we're just chit chatting one day and she said, you've got to get to Ercos and you've got to get there. And uh, once I arrived, I've done work overseas before, but that was my first time at a conference of that size. And uh, with, especially with teachers from all over, all over Asia. It was just a phenomenal experience. The, um, the one regret, my wife is an educator as well, <clears throat> as I, I've been for 40 something years. And the one regret we had in our lives as professionals was we never did do any teaching internationally. And I think if we went back now, you know, 20 years ago, we would definitely do that. I think it's the people I've met who were in the international teaching or education community are among the most uh, uh, alive in the sense <laughs> of of keeping keeping the spark of teaching there uh, their uh, ability just to adapt to so many different situations for themselves especially for their kids is absolutely exceptional uh, i just did work last year in ecuador at a at an international school and again it was nothing more than reinforcing the fact that i wish we had taken that chance because the people i've met in the international education community are just phenomenal individuals themselves who have a commitment to kids that I've seldom seen at other places. Yeah. And not to mention that the, the uh, parties at these <laughs> are quite exceptional. Yeah. They didn't have those in Ecuador. That was pretty no. good. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you, your focus is on gifted and talented education and I'll right. get more into that in a little bit, but so some people might be confused why a uh, special education network would have an expert in gifted education on our podcast. Yeah. Um, can you speak to that? I sure can. Uh, actually, it may help that I started my teaching career with kids uh, 
who had uh, cognitive delays. So my first degree is in something, believe it or not, it was called mental retardation at the time, mm -hmm. uh, cognitive difficulties. And my master's degree is in working with kids with emotional disorders. So my first two degrees and my first teaching years were spent with kids who had not the gifted label, but, but uh, some other special ed label. And uh, because of a kid I taught in my special ed class, I went into gifted. And I have a long story about this kid I may not have time for, but this was a kid who was in my class because of his uh, severe behavior issues in his regular classes. He came to my class every day for three or four hours, actually. Uh, and as my mother would say, he hated me like the devil hates holy water. But <laughs> we were kind of stuck with each other and nothing I tried worked with him. I tried, uh, you know, basically allowing him to do work that, uh, I thought he would like, and if he did like it, he would do it. But if it was basic skills or it was math concepts or spelling lists or, you know, basic stuff like that, not only wouldn't he do the work, but he had a red crayon and he'd write the word irrelevant on each paper. <laughs> and how old was he? And he was, he was 11 and he spelled irrelevant correctly, <laughs> which tells you something. And so here was this kid with all kinds of special ed labels. The thing is he was right the stuff I was asking him to do was irrelevant. I was just not mature enough as a professional at the time to realize it. And it was just an awful year. That was my first year teaching. And I had this kid for two years and only in the middle of the second year did things change. And that's because he got sprayed by a skunk. I lived in Northern New Hampshire at the time and not much happens in the middle of March in Northern New Hampshire, except two things. Maple sap starts to flow from trees and skunks come out to mate. Well, Mac was in his yard doing his business, which again, I knew nothing about this until later. <clears throat> his business was maple sugar farming and huh. he was trying to get licensed by the state so we could sell his stuff in stores rather than just out of his house. And he was there that morning looking on, you know, which trees had, how much sap he'd collected. And Kara uh, Skunks was out there and they certainly didn't want him around. So he got sprayed, came to school, smelled like crazy. And I was disgusted with him by this point. So I said, let's just go outside because he smelled too bad. And that's when he told me basically that he was a businessman. I knew nothing about it. And I was like, whoa. So for the rest of that year, maple sugar became his curriculum in virtually every subject area. And now it seems so easy. You know, math was measurement and um, quartz and pints and making change and stuff like that. Uh, his science project was trying to get him licensed by the state of New Hampshire because he had to make his product pure enough. I didn't know anything about maple sugar farming, so I found a mentor in town who did. And again, in retrospect, it all seems so common sense, but at the time it didn't. So after three years of working with Matt, and he became very skilled, and all of a sudden the irrelevant things that he threw at my desk weren't being thrown anymore. And I realized that there can be kids who have some issues in life, behavioral, uh, cognitive learning disabilities, whatever, and still be wicked smart, as we say in New England. So I went into my doctoral work, wanting to work with kids like Matt, who were smart, but had some obstacles, whether they were cognitive or uh, behavioral. That's a long answer, but that's basically what got uh, me <laughs> That's an amazing story. So I'm trying to picture this 11-year-old um, going into a business that's just so impressive and speaks to, yeah. And he actually dedicated one of my books to him because I'm not sure where I'd be today. I think maybe selling shoes at Nordstrom's or something if it hadn't been for this kid. Uh, and the funny thing was uh, 
he got his social studies project was to, uh, I took pictures of him doing his, his business, went into his backyard, snowshoed into his backyard, took photographs of it. Uh, he developed the photographs. He had to write a script that was part of his writing assignment and then put the, put the uh, slides together into a show. And then he presented that to the fifth and sixth graders uh, in their social studies class. He got really good at it. So I called the local, the Rotary Club folks and I said, I've got this kid you know, who's really good. And they said, yes, he can come up to give a talk. And uh, Matt always dressed the same way at school. Any, t any time of year, he had flannel shirt, dirty blue jeans, and hiking boots. I mean, it was just every day the same thing. Well, the day he had to present for the lunch, he had a flannel shirt, blue jeans, hiking boots, and a paisley tie. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, all right, first of all, he looked just like the Rotary guys. But secondly, I felt so proud. Here was this kid who was now a year before just, you know, every teacher's worst nightmare. And a year later, because of looking at curriculum from his side of the desk, uh, his, whole, his whole approach to education changed and so did mine. That's amazing. <clears throat> um, so you have this wealth of knowledge when it comes to gifted children and teens. You've worked with them now for more than 40 years. Is that 40, correct? I'm still doing my, my next teaching day with my ninth graders is tomorrow. Wow. And you specialize in social and emotional needs for them. And you've written 25 books. Yeah, I'm on number 26 <laughs> and hopefully the last. But yeah, I'm on the number 26 right now. Why don't you tell some of our listeners about some of your books? Uh, well, the one I'm working on now is probably, the, it's, well, certainly is the most popular one. It's called The Gifted Teen Survival Guide, <clears throat> and it's co-authored with a, a woman named Judy Galbraith. Uh, it first came out in 1983, and it's now in its fifth edition. Obviously, it gets expanded every, and changed every time we, we put the new one together. But it basically deals with uh, what teenagers, first of all, we define giftedness. We look at intelligence. We look at peer relationships, uh, career possibilities, because when you're a smart teenager and you're good at a whole lot of things, choosing a college major can actually be a hassle because you might want to do 10 things and college says, no, you got to major in one, maybe two. Uh, so we talk about that. We talk about depression because there are a lot of, uh, not a lot, there are kids though who are really smart, who if they're in the wrong uh, educational environment, they know they don't fit and no one seems to think that they have any special needs because, hey, you're a smart kid, you can deal with it. And some of them do, but a lot of them don't. So the survival guide is actually a book meant to be put in the hands of, of teenagers, and it's, it's sold almost uh, half a million copies in published in multiple languages, so it's done really well. Uh, I've written two books for parents of gifted kids. One just simply called Parenting Gifted Kids, duh. Uh, but the other one is called Understanding Your Gifted Child from the Inside Out. And again, deals more with the social and emotional aspects of giftedness. Uh, I've always said that the easy part about being smart is being smart and going to school well and finding, you know, getting A's easy. It's some of the other uh, pieces, again, the social pieces, the emotional ones, the, the career-directed stuff that can kind of complicate complicate matters a bit. Uh, and the other books, my actually my wife and I just wrote two books last year. Let's see, one's called, I'm looking at it now, Creating Strong Kids Through Writing, 30-minute lessons that build empathy, self-awareness, and social and emotional understanding, and then creating kind and compassionate kids, which are 
classroom-based lessons that we have each done, and so we have samples of kids writing uh, in each of the in each of the books, of just what teachers can do, especially in the language arts area, to get kids to open up uh, about what's important to them. That the books for curriculum, like this one, these two. They're really not focused on gifted kids. I don't think there's such a thing as a gifted curriculum. I think any curriculum, you, <coughs> excuse me, any curriculum uh, can be finessed if you're skilled enough to work with kids across the spectrum in terms of ability. So the lessons themselves aren't gifted lessons. That's not even a term I use. But gifted kids do tend to react to them in a way that's quite deep. So those are those are just some of the books. Uh, there's others, but those are probably oh, thanks. the and I'll add those books to the show notes so our listeners can easily find them. Um, you mentioned a little bit about depression. Does anxiety also play a big role for our students who are gifted? It's anxiety and stress, and a lot of it has to deal, short answer, yes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it has to deal with perfectionistic tendencies that these kids have. Uh, let me tell you, the school I teach in now is public school. It's in uh, Orique County, South Carolina. Uh, near the Myrtle Beach, uh, Conway area, if anyone knows that. And the kids come to it. It's a high school that's based on a college campus. <clears throat> it's a small high school of 200 kids. And the kids come in as ninth graders and they start taking college classes as ninth grade, uh, second semester ninth graders at, our, at the university where the school is located. So by the time the kids finish high school, they not only have a high school diploma, they have almost two thirds of a college degree under their belt and that's all paid for because of the relationship the school district has with the university. It's an amazing school and the, the kids are quite powerful academically. But what happens is virtually every kid who comes in that school is used to being the smartest kid in class. And now all of a sudden, everyone is the smartest kid in class and it creates a whole new dynamic. So, when I go in, I go in just two days a month, uh, which I always say is the only way to teach ninth grade is two days a month. But anyway, <laughs> I go in two days a month. And I, I've come to say that I'd like to try to reinflate their emotional tires. Because for, in some cases, these kids will get a B or a B plus and they think they failed. And then they look around them. And for the first time in their lives, they're confused. They have no clue how to study because they never needed to study. You know, so you have all of these complicating factors. They don't impact every kid, certainly, but we oftentimes don't discuss them because a lot of people think gifted kids have it made, and and uh, some do. But for the most part, they're like any other teenager. They need to address some of the issues that confront them. Whether again, whether it's because of perfectionism, the anxiety. Uh, is very strong, the level of stress. You know, if kids taking calculus as ninth graders and then taking a foreign language at the university level, and parents who probably expect that they'll do just as well as they did in third grade. And so there's all those factors that come into play that uh, when I go in and work with them, uh, I don't teach a content, I serve more like a counselor as a, as a guide, I guess you'd say, and try to get these issues uh, addressed sometimes just the conversation and a lot of times just the writing assignments that we do. Thanks. And you, you mentioned this and, and you say there's a common misconception of if they're so smart, they don't need additional help. Why is this a thought? Um, what I don't like, and this has happened so often in our, at least in American culture, 
we seem to think that some kids are needier than others when it comes to education. And when I taught kids with, with disabilities, there wasn't one person I met who didn't pat me on the back and say, oh, God love you for this. You must have the patience of a saint. And I'm sure right. every special ed teacher has heard that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, ki- the, p- the teachers who were sending their kids to me or I was working with those kids felt like I had a competence and I had maybe a, a different set of skills or a different timeline, whatever. Whatever it was, they felt I was doing something that not only was helping the kids, but helping them. And okay, move into gifted thinking, well, it's part of special ed. I mean, just take a look at the, the bell-shaped curve. You know, this kid at either ends and the further you, <laughs> you get to either of those ends, obviously the, the needs are going to be there. And so I go in and I say, hey, I'm here to work with your gifted kids. You can't take those kids. Those are the ones who make my teaching fun. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, and it was like, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm not evil, really. I'm just trying to serve these kids in a way that matters to them. And there's one thing I do when I, when I give presentations for teachers that seems to put this into good effect. I ask them when they first come in to write the alphabet for me. And so I said, just, just, just a quick exercise, just write the alphabet, trade papers with you know, someone to make sure you got it right. And they giggle. And then I don't do anything with it. I just put it away. And then maybe two hours into the workshop, I'll say, I have another activity for us. I'd like you to take out a piece of paper and write the alphabet. And people still do it because they're like, oh, I wonder what this guy's up to. Yeah. And they don't do anything about it. And then after lunch, I say, all right, before we get started, I have a great activity. I'd like you to write the alphabet. Well, by now, people are bolting towards the door. And I say, why, why are you upset? We already know how to do this. You showed us how to. I've proven it already as an adult that I know the alphabet. Why should I have to keep showing it to you? And gifted kids feel the same way when they are asked to uh, do work that they've mastered already through no fault of their own. And people say, you have to do it because. Imagine if you were put in that position by writing the alphabet and nobody you talk to is convinced that you're right. Everyone has to practice. Well, to an extent, but once I've shown you to your satisfaction that I know it, can't I move on and do something else? A lot of the books I wrote, uh, one of the books I wrote is called Doing Poorly on Purpose. And it's about underachievement. And I find that there are a lot of kids who are not underachievers. They're selective consumers. <laughs> and that's the term I use in the book, that they, uh, under the right conditions with the right teacher who says, whoa, you are really good at this. Instead of doing this work, let me have you do something different. Uh, what would you like to do instead of the work that all the other kids are doing? That's not special privileges. That's meeting the needs of kids where they are, just as we do for kids with disabilities. So I never understood why the um, such d- diverse set of uh, opinions and attitudes about serving gifted kids when to me they're just one other end of the educational intellectual spe- uh, spectrum. Those are such great points. Um, you, you talked about the um, proving you can do something. It just kind of made me rewind back to my elementary school days when we would take pretests and mm-hmm. for spelling. And I always got a hundred percent. I don't know why I just could spell. Um, and yet it didn't matter. I, I still had to take the, the <laughs> test final test at the end of the week. So on Monday I'd get a hundred percent on Friday. I had to 
take the test and get a hundred percent. It was like practice work. Yeah, all Tuesday, the Wednesday, work. Thursday, you do the practice work. Yeah, <laughs> no, that, that's that's pretesting done wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me give you an example of pretesting done right. Okay, this is from uh, I can't take credit for this. It's from my wife's experience as a as a teacher, but. Uh, she taught gifted care. That's how I met her. Actually, I was doing my uh, PhD research in her school. Ta-da, here we go. Anyway, um, she had a, a, it was a fifth grade boy and she was the gifted ed specialist. So she saw the kids on a, uh, like a pullout program, a resource room, whatever term that you, it's they're not now as common as they once were. And I wish they were actually still common, but anyway, that's another story. So she was going to be working with this kid. I think it was two afternoons a week or something. So he was gifted on Tuesday afternoon and Monday morning. <laughs> the rest of the time he wasn't. Uh, but his his classroom teacher, and it was the one teacher who taught all of the subjects in fifth grade, uh, gave pretests the right way. And he found out that this kid named Robert basically was a whiz at everything he tried in terms of fifth grade curriculum. And so the teacher came to my wife and said, I don't want this kid to be bored. Can we all meet and figure out what Robert would like to do instead? And so they called him in and he had his own ideas. Uh, one of the things he loved was science. And he ended up writing, excuse me, writing a, a pretty extensive paper called Relativity 123, which was the theory of relativity that kids could understand. Uh, and as I, a fifth grader, as a fifth grader. And I love what he, one of his lines in the introduction is, um, you might not understand everything in this paper. I don't myself. But among physicists, there is a saying, you never understand a new theory, you just get used to it. And then he adds, I hope this gets, helps you get used to relativity. Okay, so one of the problems was that, but the one that I'm even more fascinated by is the one I'll share with you that uh, Robert also loved poetry, but he'd never seen poetry and science together. So one of his projects for language arts was writing scientific poetry. And I just wanna read a short one that again, he wrote this at the age of 11. <clears throat> He called it fall leaves. He writes this, I see a leaf, it is yellow with red and orange mixed in. My mind says the yellow is caused by the oxidation of leftover sugars. The red and orange are caused by the emergence of recessive pigments. I see a leaf, it is yellow with red and orange mixed in. My heart says the yellow is a bit of leftover sun from summer. The red and orange is the leaf spiraling down the lowest spectrum as it is going to sleep. I see a leaf. Whoa. He had 20 poems. Yeah, he had 20 poems. And he did this work instead of, not on top of, his practice sheets. And the, the fancy term people use is curriculum compacting. I don't particularly like that term because when I think of compacting, I think of trash. Yeah. And curriculum is not trash, right? I think it's curriculum alignment more than it is curriculum compacting. But I mean, your third grade teacher had the right idea of pretesting, but sadly just did it wrong. And right. instead of using it as a diagnostic tool, just used it as yet another exercise to get through Monday morning. I I'm still thinking about the poem. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Oh, another one you wrote for, I, I can end later with the one you wrote for parents. That is okay. so, I got to find it in one of my books here then. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, while you're looking for that. Um, so the curriculum alignment you mentioned. And so just for our teachers, what are some few, just a few practical strategies 
that we can use in our classrooms when we're working with our gifted students? Well, the first one is the one we're talking about right now, which mm -hmm. is curriculum, compacting alignment, uh, whatever you'd want to call it. And I wouldn't do, I wouldn't just relegate it to uh, gifted kids. I would give permission, if you will, if you're in a regular class setting or whatever situation you're in, offer an invitation. <clears throat> For example, take a, take a math, let's say kids are learning multiplication, like two digit by three digit multiplication or something like that. Well, if there's a page of problems, the most difficult ones are in the bottom of the page. Because psychologists know that if we get you thinking with the early problems and get those right, you'll have the confidence and you know concentrate more as you go through the problems. Well, if there were 20 problems on the page and the last row of five is the most difficult, why not offer all of the kids to do the last row first, do the hardest ones first? And if they get all of them right, or no more than say one uh, small uh, error, they don't have to do the rest of them because they've proven they've, they've mastered the skill, okay? With spelling, same thing, give a pretest on Monday. If the kids do well, they don't have to do the practice exercises. Maybe they can write poems about science instead. They can still take the test on Friday to show that they've learned, but they don't have to repeat all of the, the silly work was they, how they would see it. So it's basically taking a look at what kids <clears throat> already know how to do and then finessing or aligning the curriculum so that instead of doing that work, they do something else. And I don't want teachers to make the mistake of saying on top of all the other work, because that's the biggest thing that kids will say, why do I have to do the extra work? Why can't I just do this, the new stuff rather than the stuff that I already know? And a lot of teachers are reluctant to let go of those basic skills because they're afraid that, you know, they'll be held accountable for it. But if you have evidence that the kid knows the stuff, I don't think a principal is going to come in and look at every single page that makes up that competence. They're just going to know how, what does the kid know? Okay. So those are really some of the, the, the best techniques to use. And then when it comes to um, what they can do instead, the example I use with Robert is one. Uh, but I think basically just asking kids, if you had the opportunity to do something in school that you haven't had a chance to do, what would it look like? You know, with the very youngest kids, that's a, that's more of a stretch. But with older kids, uh, they, for the most part, know what do they do outside of school that they might be able to bring in? What are some of the things that they love that they just never seem to have enough time to to engage in? And they can do it with another kid. It doesn't always have to be solo. It doesn't always have to be isolated. So those are the things. Teachers do not have to plan every single segment of what comes later. Uh, you just have to ask kids, what is it you'd like to do and how can I help? Those are the those are the main things. So it's there's no secret recipe, there's no secret curriculum. It really is just looking at what the kid is and going, hmm, this kid knows more than I think most fifth graders do. Uh, what can I do about it? That's great. I, I I believe there's some schools popping up around the world um, that do just that, and it's again not just for the gifted kids, but for all the kids in their care. Um, they create the plan of what they want to learn and the, mm -hmm. the teachers help facilitate that. Well, it's so. almost like a personal education plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and let me just give you one other example. This is a 13 year old uh, that I, one of the books I wrote was actually, we did a, a, a buddy and I did a book, did two books on um, what do kids think about growing up gifted. And so we put an online survey, received over 6,000 replies from, from kids around the world. And 
just telling us what they need, what they'd like, uh, what they wish teachers and parents wouldn't do more. But here's what one kid said when I asked if school, well, there's two of them. I asked, this kid said he was creative. And I said, is there, uh, can being creative ever get you in trouble at school? And this 13 year old said this, last year I had the most amazing English teacher. She would just let us write every day. Everyone in the class's creative horizons expanded massively. It was then that I first realized the joy of speaking to someone's soul through a form of art. However, this year has been plagued with standardized testing. And then parentheses, he writes, please don't get me started. And when I took the extra time to incorporate rhythmic motif into my poetry, my English teacher scolded me saying that I should not use rhythmic motif because we had not yet gone over it in class. That hurt me. That hurts me. That hurts me. And this is the same kid. And then I want to say a 14 year old girl as well, is what she said. But one of the questions was, what's your biggest challenge in school? And this is where I get to the social and emotional piece. He said, my biggest challenge is dealing with teachers who run away from extremely bright children. Teachers should embrace gifted children, nor try to form us into seventh grade stereotypes. My teachers come up to me and say, well, I wasn't like you in seventh grade, or just learn to deal with it, Jacob. The next biggest challenge is to find students who can really be my friends. Most kids my age are into how tight their genes are, not the human response to the unknown. Wow. Reinflating their emotional tires, as I said, is, is my job. Uh, and this, this is a 14 year old girl, just, just a couple more examples here. And I was giving a talk in New York a keynote address, and she was supposed to introduce me and just say, hey, this is Dr. Delisle, he's here, hope you enjoy it. And instead, she read this thing that she'd written the night before, that it goes on for about uh, 700 words. I just want to give you a couple statements from her. Uh, <clears throat> she said this, uh, good morning, my name is Christine, I am highly gifted. I would normally go around telling people or wearing a badge that identifies me as such. However, for the purposes of this talk, I thought I'd better be straight with you. The thought did cross my mind to write profoundly on the topic, but then I quickly dismissed it because I'm trying to cut down on the number of deep and meaningful thoughts I have before breakfast. And then she has a series of questions, she says, that arise from my own experiences. And I'll just read a couple. Why is giftedness linked to achievement? That is what I can or cannot do instead of what and how I feel. Isn't it frustrating that the majority of teachers appear to be extroverts? with no real understanding of the meaning of introversion or the needs of introverts, how hard would it be for schools to allow open access to quiet places to people like me who find being around other people draining and need time to reflect? And how come parents and teachers persist in their belief that my school underachievement will be reversed by taking away my passions or interests or holding them to ransom and then seem surprised when I lose the will to cooperate? These kids Isn't are that crying out, they're, they're, they're crying out to be heard and to be seen and not to be cataloged as a smart kid who doesn't need much help. So that's what's kept me going in this field for 40 years. It's amazing. I remember who, being an academic counselor at a middle school and um, quite often the parents would take away the very thing the child loved the most because they weren't doing their math homework or they weren't turning in, you know, certain things. And you know, but then they say, well, you can't be in the school play. Right. It's like, but that's where they excel. That's what they, their passion is. So let's leave them in there. Chances are we can, we can 
get to the heart of the not turning in the math homework without taking away their passion. Yeah. And when I say that, I totally agree. And when I say that to a bunch of middle school teachers, the reaction is often, that's not the way the world works. Everyone has to do boring stuff at work. And I'm like, dude, you don't get it. Um, you know, if, if I was at a job, I hated so much and every day was boring. I have the opportunity to quit. Yeah. Kids don't, kids can't leave school. I mean, not, not until they're older, but if you have a 10 year old who just is like, I need to learn more than I'm learning now. And you're going to take away stuff until I do. The kid has nowhere to run to. So he or she just shuts off and who can blame them? You know, so uh, again, I'm not blaming teachers here, but I think the whole idea of carrot and stick, you know, you're not going to be able to do all the stuff you love until you have to do the stuff you hate because that's how the real world works. It really isn't how the real world works. Uh, it's not. Uh, and why are we always trying to prepare students for adulthood? Why aren't we just preparing them for the year they're at? The only they're day in currently. <laughs> the, the only time we know we have the kids is the day they're with us. We have no mm -hmm. clue what's going to happen the next night or the next day. Uh, and so to, right, to, to always, plan, I'm not saying you shouldn't ever plan for the future and look ahead, but if you're doing something, uh, if, if a kid is not succeeding today, we need to know what their reality is. Uh, and I've long said that, uh, teachers need to, with, with kids, the ones I'm talking about, they need to listen 75% of the time and talk 25% of the time. And usually it's the reverse. You know, so uh, I think listening is an underused skill that a lot of uh, educators have. So true. <laughs> <laughs> did you find the poem? I did. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, so before you read the poem, let me just thank you for your time today. Sure. And it was just truly a pleasure, uh, learning from you, speaking with you. Thank you. So. Well, no, it's funny when I, when, cause I, again, I've been doing this for four decades now. Uh, and a lot of times I think when people hear the term gifted or gifted and talented, they think it's a really limited number of kids. I think it's a real limited focus. And the more that I've been in this, the more I realize just how complicated it is. Just as complicated as working with that maple sugar kid back in New Hampshire. Right. Ago, you know, uh, we need to see gifted as part of the special ed spectrum and, uh, and serve those kids with the same respect that we serve kids who have disabilities of any kind. But let me read this poem. This was one that Robert wrote for parents, okay? Uh, and it deals, every one of his 20 poems dealt with a different scientific concept. And this one dealt with aerodynamics. So here's what he wrote. Of course. <laughs> of course. He titled it Kids and Kites. And he says this, kites fly, but they need an anchor. Kids roam, but they need a home. If a kite loses its anchor, it falls. If a child loses his home, he declines. As a kite goes higher and higher, you give it more string. As a child grows older and older, you give them more freedom. But here the similarity ends. For kites, even with the most string imaginable, crash sooner or later. But kids, if they are old enough, adjust safely and create new homes. And yeah, he's 11. Well, and I hope that gave you some insights and your listeners some insights into this, this fascinating field of, of uh, gifted kids and, and teenagers. Uh, they're not just smart kids. They are uh, 
they are that, but they, they have so many other needs that as educators, as counselors, as parents, we can help address. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Delisle. Thanks, Larry, so much. Thanks for stopping in to our Senya Happy Hour. Don't forget to head over to senyainternational.org slash podcasts and check out our show notes from our discussion today. We at Senya hope you are enjoying these podcasts. There is so much to explore, and we're at the very beginning, so feel free to drop us a note and let us know what you'd like to hear more about during your next Senya Happy Hour. Until then, cheers!